If you have primary school-aged kids or grandkids, make sure Vision Kids is part of their daily routine. Vision Kids! Vision Kids is a 24-7 online radio stream featuring the ever-popular Adventures in Odyssey. Hi, this is Chris. Welcome to Adventures in Odyssey. Plus other world-class radio dramas, kids' music and friendly voices. G'day, Vision Kids. Vision Kids is streaming now in the Vision app and online at visionkids.org.au. You can also tell your smart speakers to play Vision Kids Radio. If you don't already have the Vision app on your phone or tablet, you can download it for free when you search Vision Christian Media in your app store. Vision Kids. Another way we're helping the whole family look to God daily. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. No doubt you've heard disturbing stories of some of the dreadful mistreatment of children Growing up in the developing world, well, stories of poverty, neglect and abuse are only the tip of the iceberg. Today, we're wading into some deeper waters to discuss the traumatization of children who are recruited as child soldiers. Now, this practice of recruiting children is rife in some African nations, nations like Angola or Chad, Congo, Somalia. Also in South American nations like Colombia and closer to home in places like the Philippines and Myanmar. Sometimes we know Myanmar as Burma. In Myanmar, there are possibly tens of thousands of children recruited as child soldiers, mostly between the ages of 12 and 18 years. In the Philippines, armed opposition groups, including the Moro Islamic Front, have been recruiting children as informants and spies. Well, you can hear this conversation is going to be one uh, that will perhaps grip your heart. Uh, children exposed to these sorts of brutalities is just dreadful. Our special guest today is Chocho. Chocho works with the Freedom Project and is a specialist in restoration of child soldiers in the Philippines and Myanmar. So a special welcome to 2020 to you, Chocho. Oh, thank you, Neil. Chocho, you're in Australia and uh, a special visit. Uh, uh, why are you here in Australia? You're, you're no doubt going to be speaking to various groups around the nation. Yes, um, particularly just right here in Sydney. Uh, Freedom Project has set up two major events. One already uh, happened last night and another one tomorrow evening. Uh, do you know where that one is? And, uh, and we'll mention that throughout our conversation. Um, if, uh, Macquarie Park. Macquarie Park. <laughs> Macquarie Park. Macquarie Park. All right. Well, we'll get that yeah. detail and uh, and we'll give that another mention because uh, I suspect uh, there are going to be some people who are going to be wanting to hear firsthand some of the things that you'll talk about. Let's mm-hmm. talk about the work that you do, a specialist in restoring child soldiers, and you work in Myanmar and in the Philippines. I mentioned a few things there in the introduction. What can you let us in on about the things that have drawn you into this work of working with these children? Um, particularly during my time uh, in responding to a Yolanda, I don't know if you've heard about a super typhoon that landed in the Philippines in 2013. I do recall. Yes, um, I did uh, respond to that one as a volunteer, and then eventually what ended up 
to be just like a, a week of voluntary uh, work ended up uh, to serving them for a year, uh, working with vulnerable kids. And it was like six months just before that one. I was actually seeking uh, for God's perfect will for me. What's next after, you know, I resigned from my job uh, in sales and marketing. And do uh, I also had business management. And so I felt like the Lord was just uh, leading me to verses on speaking the rights of those who could not, you know, speak for themselves, like defending the rights of the poor and the needy, and particularly for the orphans and the kids. And I said, so where is that exactly, Lord? And so six months after, Freedom Project actually brought me to, Mike brought me to Mindanao, where I got the chance to meet some of the workers, the team in there. And one of the interviews that I had to translate in English for Mike was a former child soldier in the Abu Sayyaf, which is an extremist group in the Philippines. I'm sure you've heard about the beheading of, you know, foreigners for kidnapped for ransom. And so that really, you know, struck me. And I just felt like the Lord was just confirming that that was exactly where I was called at this particular season in my life. So, yeah. Okay, so... You responded to just helping out with relief work uh, with the typhoon that went through. Yes. And that connected you with the Freedom Project, and you discovered Mm -hmm. that there was a real work where you could make a tremendous contribution, and you began to work with these children uh, who were uh, forced into being child soldiers. Now, I know that listeners will be wondering, why are there children who are being forced into and recruited as child soldiers in places like the Philippines and Myanmar. I wonder whether you can give us a little background on on why these children are recruited. Uh, For the Philippines, though, it's uh, quite different from the setting in Myanmar. Like the one at the border state of, you know, China, Myanmar and China, it's actually forced conscription where the kids um, are just being forcibly, um, you know, taken out from their family. So if you are a family of with five kids, they can actually take two or three kids out of your family and put them in the army. So it's a property of the state army in Myanmar. Uh, so if we talk about that setting there, we're talking about not enough uh, adult-aged men in the armies, and so they, therefore they recruit children. Is that the reason? Yes. Um, basically, like, they can recruit from the ages of, like, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, and so they just, you know, pick them up from the family and just basically use them as their own property at their own disposal. Okay. And uh, so far as those children in the Philippines, what's their story? Um, there are three actually different contexts in the Philippines. Uh, for one, the extremist, uh, extremist groups like Abisayov and those of the ISIS-inspired groups, they're actually being paid, um, you know, such very uh, handsome amount to be able to join in. So kids are being recruited, um, but for the particular purpose of one that I've interviewed, it was uh, his father himself was an Abu Sayyaf. And so at the age of seven, he himself was uh, started already his training, um, how to, you know, disarm disarm a garment in one minute. And then at the age of eight, blindfolded, uh, disarm again an arm in, in a minute. But at the age of 12, he was already exposed to actual trying to kill someone. So by 14, he was a hired assassin already. Okay. And the other group, though, like, um, it's a Muslim group as well. There's a lot of those. But then this is, like, more of a cultural thing. It's like an honor for them to serve their own um, community. 
whereby they are trying to fight for self-determination. And so for most of them, because they live in such remote, um, you know, poor areas, so they would love, the kids actually themselves, take it an honor to serve in the army. Now, am I correct in assuming that when we talk about these groups, Abu Sayyaf, I mentioned the Moro uh, Liberation Front, these are mm-hmm. Islamic groups. So when you talk about a cultural pride uh, in children wanting to get into the army and serve as soldiers, uh, that's a part of an Islamic culture that that happens in? Um, for the for Mindanao, though, uh, you have to understand that um, there has been a struggle for the Muslim communities to fight for self-determination because they have been so neglected. Um, if you trace in the history of Mindanao, they consider themselves as the first settlers uh, in that island, and they were only just forcibly, you know, they had to be displaced because of a lot of the Visayans and those coming from the different islands coming into Mindanao. And so even they don't have, like, their uh, rights in, in terms of being able to enjoy their basic social rights, so they have decided to actually, you know, take it force against the government. Uh, Cho- of corruption and all of that, yeah. Sure. Chocho, what about the families of these children? Uh, I'm assuming that families don't let their children go easily and uh, that lots of these children are in fact kidnapped as by way of a recruitment. Uh, but is there a sense in which you talk about some of the cultural issues there uh, in the Philippines where families are happy for their children to go into uh, these sorts of recruitment uh, lifestyles? Is that the case? Um, like what I said, it's a different context for those like um, extremist Islamic groups uh, whereby the kids, um, some of them are just being raised by their parents themselves who are part of the group. And so they have no choice. They end up being trained um, in that particular culture. Whereas in the other context, their families are actually part of the entire army. They're not living, uh, basically, all of them are not living in the military camps, but basically in all of these communities where they are in, they are affiliated with that army. And so the kids grew up in that environment where they automatically, part of their culture, is serving in the army, whether whatever that is um, that they're asked to do, they're willing to just, you know, serve wholeheartedly. So, Chocho, tell me now about your ministry role uh, with the Freedom Project, uh, with children in Myanmar and in the Philippines. Uh, What do you do to start to try and uh, break the strongholds of these children being recruited into uh, child soldier roles? Uh, How do you work uh, the, the process of helping children get out of that? Uh, what is unique with the Freedoms Project um, program in the area is that we actually get to work within the community itself. We don't extract the kids outside of their communities. So, for example, in the Muslim communities and that of the IP communities as well, because there are also armed groups surrounding um, the IP communities, bringing the kids as well to join in the army. Uh, the, the banner program that we have is to be able to provide them with their basic social service, which is education. So for up in the remote mountains of the northern part of Mindanao, um, these are like tribal communities uh, in the jungles who do not have access to education. So like the nearest school for them 
uh, is actually three to five hours away. Now, you're talking about them walking to that particular school. But if you, you know, if we are not from the mountains, since my visit there, I, it took for me a day and a half to be able to get to these communities. And so you set up a school. Once you set up a school, it's actually their dream to be able to have an education. But because there has been no access, it was actually the other militant group, paramilitary group, that, you know, uh, came in, brainwashing them, gave them, you know, gave them an education that is informal. And so with this, when we began, Freedom Project began to set up schools, build schools right in the jungles, that after three years, the entire community actually resolved and decided never to allow their kids anymore to be engaged in that paramilitary group. Whereas in the Muslim community, uh, we actually offer the scholarship programs right in the military camp. We ask them who are those who would you know, be willing to uh, take the offer to get an education. And of course, a lot of the kids wanted school. And so we actually set them up in um, the nearest Muslim school actually is like uh, within their barangay as well. And so right now, after three years also of the program, we have built such a very good relationship with the community. Um, the workers in there actually get to visit the families weekly. And then we do have a values formation program as well in partnership with that Muslim school. And so there has been such a very good um, progress. And one of which uh, is like the reason, I don't know if you've heard about the Marawi crisis last year, where some of the kids were actually invited and recruited to be a part of responding into that crisis. But then because we had a scheduled um, orientation for before school, they said and confessed to us that they, you know, they, they could have gone there already if had we not called a meeting for them to be able to, you know, uh, prepare themselves for school. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. A special privilege today led into some behind the scenes of what's happening in the work of one mission organization called the Freedom Project. Chocho is our guest. She's a specialist in the restoration of child soldiers in the Philippines and in Myanmar. We've been talking largely about the Philippines. You said Myanmar is very different to the circumstance that faces the Philippines. What's different about Myanmar, Chocho? Um, like what I said, it's actually for conscription um, where the kids are uh, the, the property, you know, of the state army uh, right at the border of because there's different contexts as well inside Myanmar. Uh, you're talking about we're talking about the border of China and Myanmar. So that's where the forced conscription comes in, where families have no choice because, um, you know, their kids just get uh, to be conscripted by the army. Okay, now the sorts of things that children are exposed to when they're recruited as child soldiers uh, led us into the behind the scenes, and this might even be a little bit disturbing for some listeners to hear that children are involved in these sorts of activities, but what sort of things as child soldiers are these children involved in in Myanmar? Um, They can actually serve in a lot of, you know, ways, uh, basically in the operations from kitchen, from, you know, serving um, as laborers um, uh, to the point of even serving at the front line when they're asked to join in in terms of actual armed conflict. So uh, the daily operations of what it is inside the military camp, 
uh, from, you know, just anything from dishwashing or even just uh, cleaning the arm, you know, artillery. Okay, so they, they're involved a lot in the support processes that might yeah. happen with a, an armed uh, militia. Uh, but uh, as I understand it, as but, you mentioned, that some on the front lines uh, and involved in all sorts of activities, even including uh, burning homes and carrying out uh, even, I'm sure, hopefully uh, in the oddest uh, uh, times, uh, even I've read of extrajudicial executions. The idea of real uh, combat, which includes even uh, the execution of people. Uh, yes, definitely, including even um, the carrying of drugs because uh, there's also heavy drug trafficking in the area. Now, these children are recruited uh, by way of, what, kidnappings? Uh, they're taken no, from... No, no, no. These ones... They, the soldiers actually go to their homes and immediately would just grab the kids that they want to be uh, serving in the army. Okay, uh, so uh, I'd call that a kidnapping, but uh, it really is, they, they'd go to find the man of the home, but if there's no mm-hmm. man, they take the children. Is that the way it works? Yes, yes. And uh, are we talking the same sorts of age group as we might have been hearing about in the Philippines? Because this is a little bit of a different context, uh, not so much the uh, the training of children as part of a family that serves uh, in the army, yeah. these ones are probably mm. a little bit older than the age of seven that you mentioned earlier. Yes, um, normally their age would be like twelve years old, twelve to fourteen. Okay, twelve to fourteen years, and when these children are recruited into the armed uh, to be soldier, child soldiers uh, in Myanmar. Uh, are these children ever trying to escape? I imagine that not every child wants to be there because I'm sure it's very harsh treatment. Yes, um, there was a, actually a family that we found because we have a new work as well in 3PP at the other border, uh, 3 Pagoda Pass. Um, there were some families who actually evacuated, I mean, just fled from the, the Wa State Army um, to be able to make sure that their kids don't get conscripted. Um, but for those who are already part of the army, it's so hard for them to actually leave. In fact, one um, very bad um, experience that we had, it was so devastating, was because this girl that actually you know, became a Christian eventually because of her program, uh, she was not only raped, but she was actually killed eventually because she wasn't willing to anymore sell drugs. Okay, we've been getting some comments on our Facebook page and you can leave a comment, you can leave a question on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash vision radio. Carolyn writes, loving our neighbour would dictate that we should protect children wherever they live. Uh, This Mm -hmm. idea of loving our neighbours as Christian believers, Chocho, uh, I'm sure that's the motivation for a lot of supporters who are supporting the Freedom Project and the work that you do. Uh, It is an act of love, isn't it, to roll up your sleeves and get in there and wherever you can to try and protect these children? Oh, yes, definitely. It's really an act of compassion. We are simply moved by the love of the Lord. Another Facebook comment from Mike who says, Hi Cho Cho, I'm familiar. Uh, Zamboanga City and regions around, the Moro are named so by the Spanish who had the Muslim Moors invaded Spain. Uh, Sigue Atay. 
Uh, I'm not sure what all of that means, but uh, does it, do you make sense of that? Yeah, I live actually just eight hours away from that city, um, but our city is actually, um, you know, it's a very peaceful place, but around other regions are actually conflict regions already in Mindanao. Okay, how well established in uh, Myanmar is the work of uh, what you're involved in with the Freedom Project and the work that you have with those child soldiers there? Um, right now, we're starting Freedom Project has just started just last year for the three, uh, three Pagoda Pass, where we are trying to reach out to other um, groups inside Myanmar, on the other side of the border, which is actually the, like the Karens, the Burmese, and the Mon tribes, where there's a lo- also a lot of kids um, growing up in that culture of violence. And so we're trying to set up, build relationships also with the military so that we can have access to these kids, just like what we did in, the, in Mindanao. And where you're working in the Philippines and starting those schools, giving an opportunity for children to have an education, uh, does it work the same way where you're working in Myanmar? Um, yes, we. that's really very basic for us, because like even in our um, consultations with some of the communities at the border of Myanmar, their desire for their kids are actually to have an education. And because these communities are quite, you know, um, they're very remote as well, and their highest grade level, actually, in the communities that we went to is only up to grade four. So after that, they cannot pursue anymore an education unless they go to the nearest, you know, just right at the border of Thailand, which would cost them a lot of money. And so what they desire for us is to be able to help them, you know, um, either build a school or provide uh, support so that they can actually move to the next level. And so we're also trying to build relationships with the military generals in there from different tribes. That Right now we're just working with the Karen tribe for now. And so uh, hopefully in the, next, you know, uh, in the next few months we would be able to have access um, to their area where we can have you know, the real vulnerable kids we wanted to reach out. Chocho, as I understand it, you also have a rescue facility for children who have escaped uh, because they're in big trouble, aren't they, if they are caught by the uh, military force that had recruited them in the first place. How does that facility work for you, and what sort of things do you do to protect those children? Oh, yes, we do have safe homes where we have um, rented out a place, or in other areas we've also built um, a safe um, place for them to be able to not only get an education, but we, of course, feed them, we clothe them, and we provide um, support, psychosocial support, and as well as, you know, we really have house managers um, to be able to look after their kids and work also along with their families in trying to build sustainability. Because they cannot forever just rely upon uh, external help. So that's really very crucial in our program whereby we instill um, sustainability concepts um, within the community themselves. So we try to provide skills, if necessary, where there are no access to um, job employment opportunities. And so many of these children have been traumatised by the experiences that they've had as child soldiers. I imagine Mm -hmm. that uh, the care component of what you have, uh, whether it's with counselling and relationship with the leaders that you Mm -hmm. might have running these these facilities, I'm, I'm sure that's very important. 
Yes, um, that's how the field workers or the missionaries on the ground actually play such a vital role. It's just being able to provide a nurturing environment for these kids. It's so important for them, having been exposed and, you know, having trauma in their lives, to really just be under um, the care and, you know, just an atmosphere of love and, you know, uh, in the area, which is, you know, right at a safe home. But at the same time, we continue to also build a relationship with their families because eventually they will have to go back as well into their home. So it's important that the parents themselves understand what it means to value kids. Now, we mentioned that you are speaking tomorrow night at the Morling Bible College in Macquarie Park Mm -hmm. in Sydney. Uh, You're in Australia and it's only a short visit, uh, but the opportunity that you have to meet people who are particularly interested in caring for these children who've been recruited as child soldiers, uh, what sort of, I imagine you'll, you'll recount some of the sorts of things we're talking about today, but is there a particular message you're bringing to uh, your audience when they come to see you speak? in in person um i specifically just want to be able to thank for the supporters of freedom project uh, for one right here in australia because you know without the support that freedom project is giving to our projects in the area we would not be able to make that difference that we're doing right now because there's been a lot of impact as well even just within the few years that we've been doing like um you know and in, in, in some parts of mindanao you can see how the program has impacted the other neighboring communities that they want their kids themselves to avail of such program. But, you know, we have limited resources ourselves. And so um, I'd like to encourage those who have a heart for these vulnerable kids, you know, if they can only support we can, you know, reach out as many kids as possible. Uh, Chocho, uh, before we uh, get into uh, some other things in our conversation, uh, come to some of your motivations here, because uh, the Freedom Project and yourself, motivated by your Christian faith, uh, to be involved mm-hmm. yeah. with these children, to actually roll up your sleeves and say, we can't leave this neglected, uh, there is something special in your motivation. Yes, um, I've always wanted to just obey God, whatever it is that he tells me. And so when he began to speak to me about, you know, being the voice for those who cannot speak for themselves and defending the rights of the poor and the needy, looking after the orphans and the children. So I felt like, yes, this is such an awesome privilege to be able to, you know, just partake of this journey with him and being able to reach out to as many kids as possible. Let's talk some more about the impact of what you are doing in the Philippines and in Myanmar, the difference that is being made in the lives of communities, because you've got a goal in all of this. It's not just to go in there and try and meddle in everybody else's affairs. You actually want (laughs) to go in and create Uh, something significant you're actually trying to change the culture and create what you call regions of peace Uh, tell us some about your your goals and your aspirations for what you'd want to see happen in those communities um for one we also um definitely for one we want to see each life of a child um completely out of the culture of violence and allowing them to experience a culture of peace and then as a community, of course, having, you know, lived in a conflict region, we really envision to see regions of peace right in Mindanao. I am a Mindanao myself. I live in Mindanao. And because I live in a very peaceful city, I couldn't imagine myself, I mean, and, and others just living out there, living in trauma. One of my colleagues who's actually part of 
our team was living in one of these conflict regions, and she would actually sleep on her bed with her shoes and backpacks ready at any time because it was just normal. It's been like 40 years of sporadic wars in their area, and they could just hear bombing from everywhere. And so for them, they're just ready to be displaced at any time. Now, when we talk about creating a region of peace, bringing a change to the cultural setting there, you've got Mm -hmm. to be so sensitive. And I imagine that when you're operating schools and you've got those schools that are started even uh, in the jungles and, and you've got children who are in those and the sensitivities between the groups that are in those areas, you no doubt are walking a tightrope every day when you have your teachers come in and and they're teaching the children. Mm -hmm. I think what's the beauty with our program is that we don't try to impose um, what we call our own culture to what is already an existing culture in the area. For example, in the indigenous tribe, um, one of the tribes is called the Tala'andi community up in the remote jungles of you know, the northern part of Mindanao, when we came in there, we simply felt, um, you know, we simply meet a felt need in the area, which is having a school. You have to understand that every child's dream in that community is to be able to get an education. Now, one of the teachers in that area is, you know, from that community itself. She was the first professional in that whole tribe. And her story begins with, you know, her dreaming to be able to get to school and it only took her around 12 years old to be able to get to grade one. Um, and she had to walk three hours away from her home and had only one dress, which was borrowed from her mom to be able to get to the school. So we are seeing the dreams of these children now coming into reality that they don't have actually to walk that very far to be able to get an education because they have the schools right in their community. And so we have seen individual impacts, and, but at the same time, at a community level, the entire tribe themselves, after having enjoyed our services in the area, after having empowered them as a community, they now have a strong sense of cultural identity that they themselves have built their own local tribal organization so that they can access direct resources from government. And so that has been such a beautiful journey where the community itself, they continue to have their culture preserved. But um, now with us coming into intervening and helping them, facilitating the process of being able to fulfill their dreams, especially for the next generation. And so they themselves decided that they will no longer, uh, you know, join in this um, paramilitary groups that have been brainwashing them for years. So without the schools in those jungle areas, in those important and strategic areas that you have, there's just no way that the culture will change. People will keep on hating one another, uh, being at war with one another. Uh, But Mm. unless you are there in the school setting and creating opportunity for children to learn and to appreciate what could be different about their community, uh, then there would be no change. But the aspiration for peace comes in these children going through the school's process and understanding that there's a better way. Yes. In fact, if I may share another story from one of the Muslim community this time... Is that okay? Yes, absolutely. Right. Um, so we had uh, two scholars from um, the. Uh, these are like a daughter and a son of top militant leaders of a Muslim uh, community in the area, 
And now this is an area where um, there are Christians and indigenous peoples and Muslims uh, dwelling together in one whole um, municipality. And so there has been like 40 years of sporadic wars in this area of just, you know, tribal feuds, tribal clan um, wars, and at the same time just, you know, um, wars between IPs and Christians and Christians between (laughs) Muslims. Um, So when we started our program just last year in that area, because we just wanted to test the waters whether God is really wanting us to, you know, pursue this community, because it was really a high-risk region uh, itself. And so um, after just six months, with having this school, I mean, these kids getting into school and living in the place of, um, you know, it's it's actually like a parsonage, the kids, not only uh, perform very well academic, you know, in, in their academe, they actually represented the district level, and that brought so much pride to this Muslim family. And at the same time, there was, you know, this incident where they were mocked by a non-Muslim person. And so instead of them trying to fight against this person, because in their minds, they really wanted to combat, I mean, they, you know, use, they were trained combatants. They are actually marksmen. And so they could have easily just um, fought against that person. Or, But then they remembered the values that was taught to them. They remembered how important it is to resolve conflict in a nonviolent way. So they simply just ran away. But then our key um, facilitator, the key leader on the ground, did not just simply neglect that, um, but actually brought it into the government, um, you know, local uh, barangay level. And so the sultanate actually heard of the story. The parents were brought into the meeting, and that that non-Muslim was also asked to um, apologize in the process. And so instead of the Muslim community demanding, it was like 200,000 charged for his misconduct. That was just completely like... For, for that guy, it was like too much. It's, it's more than like five years' wages of pay for him. And so, um, of course, our uh, facilitator on the ground had to also stand in the gap in behalf of that non-Muslim guy. And eventually they settled it peaceably to just, you know, pay the amount of 5000 And that impressed the sultanate itself in there. They said they have never in any way been heard for quite some time. Their culture has never been respected in such a way that the rest of the neighboring communities, having heard of that news, were so, um, you know, thankful. The Muslims now from different barangays are wanting for us to extend our program to others. But, you know, for now, we're limited. So we said, okay, we will definitely consider extending our program. But, yes, that's why, you know, we continue to do what we're doing because we are seeing a whole lot of difference it is making in the lives of children and families and even in the communities. What an incredible story and demonstrating just how sensitive it is when you're working in those communities. As you say, uh, those Muslim communities, they won't be mocked by outsiders and therefore Mm -hmm. as Christians you need to be especially sensitive to the culture as you go in because the children, as you say, the children are trained combatants, uh, marksmen in their own right. And when they are offended, no doubt feel as though they could go and resolve the conflict uh, with a gunshot. Uh, But as you're saying, what happens in the classroom 
is instilling a set of values there so that children can resolve the conflict in a way that won't lead to bloodshed and uh, this idea of conflict resolution. Now, uh, let me ask you sensitively here, Chocho, is that conflict resolution process, the idea of forgiveness, the idea of resolving things without bloodshed, is that coming from this Christian foundation that you'd bring into the classroom? Yes, definitely. We are trying to instill biblical foundations of resolving conflict, um, not only forgiveness, but at the same time trying to really reconcile peaceably with that person. And so we're looking at it from a personal level, and hopefully they learn how to also do it like on a family context, and then now and then beginning to move into the higher level, which is a community. That's why we also take time to really work with their families and with their community leaders in the process. But yeah, the program is very gradual. We start off with the kids and then the families, and then of course, on a bigger context, the community itself. Uh, Let me ask you about the kids, because children are children everywhere, and they love play. Uh, Children, you know, they have their relationships within their family. But is there something in these children who are trained child soldiers that they do love play, they want to be children, but uh, at any moment when they recognize that they're under threat, is there something like a trigger that changes them from being children to all of a sudden taking on this sort of combatant type of personality. Does that happen? Is there something significant in the way that children are, in fact, uh, brainwashed into this idea of being a combatant? Is that the way it works? Yes. um, Because of their training, um, it's so easy for them to immediately, uh, you know, wear that, that hat in the process, if I may say. Uh, they would easily learn how to defend themselves. Uh, it's, 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 it's like a, they can quickly, you know, um, resort into, con- um, you know, violent conflict. But then that's why it's so important for us to continue to provide that kind of support. It's a, it's a journey towards healing. It's not just like a few days and weeks of training and programs. But it's also putting them in a, in a nurturing environment where the missionaries on the ground, our workers, our child protection officers are there to provide them with support and also trying to educate them the other ways, alternative ways of trying to resolve conflict and really valuing each other, valuing the dignity in every person, regardless of their faith, regardless of their culture and their, where they're coming from. So that's really important for us. Um, It's really looking at it long term. Visions 2020 with Neil Johnson. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. You don't often get to hear missionary conversations like the one we're having today. Our special guest is Chocho. Chocho works with the Freedom Project and is a specialist in restoration of child soldiers in the Philippines and in Myanmar. And Chocho, just a few minutes remaining in our conversation today, but there are some tremendous stories that have come out of the jungles in the Philippines and you've got teachers who are growing into uh, people who are uh, are quite significant community leaders. Uh, how do you describe the influence that's happening through the schools? Because those teachers have a place of respect, don't they? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, one of our teachers who actually are coming from that same community who can speak the language, 
used to be a gangster himself um, while he was um, studying um, down from the mountains. And then when he came back and became a part of our program already, because when we got to meet him, he was already volunteering his services as a teacher. And then so we, um, just as a volunteer, he had nothing. He received nothing at that time. But because we saw his commitment and passion, we started off supporting him to continue to serve in full-time work in that school that we built in the in the jungle. And so out from that one and giving him the support that he desired to be able to get into college as well, he has now fully committed to really serving the entire community as a teacher and even raising up other, um, you know, from within the tribe themselves to volunteer as teachers. And now he has not only served as our teacher in the in the community, he has become um, he has become such a significant community tribal leader where he is able to now represent the tribe even in government meetings. He was able to even have their tribal organization registered in the you know Securities Exchange Commission so that they can have access to resources from government. So from having this tribe not having anything, no access to, you know, um, uh, the outside world, they now are quite connected. They are now, their voices are now being heard. And in fact, this year, the Department of Education has finally granted them that they will be able to have their own school where they will be given also, um, you know, professional teachers from the from the department. So that's just a story of one of the things um, that really inspire us as well and how when we begin to just help facilitate process for them, you know, this tribal community would simply thrive. And now this, they're actually Christians right now. The, the teachers um, have, because of our program, they likewise are serving with gladness in their hearts. Um, they're doing this unto the Lord as well. And we've been talking about the significance of there being a, a Christian organization like the Freedom Project. And uh, no doubt people in those jungle school communities know that the Freedom Project is coming from a Christian foundation, but the sensitivity required there is so significant. But there are opportunities that some of the teachers and leaders have to be able to share the gospel, but I'm sure it's it's not something that you can just get up and publicly discuss. Yes, you have to be quite sensitive in that sense. Um you know how it is. You have to be able to understand their own story and their own journey and the history and their faith as well. And then you connect them um, with that stories from the Bible. And from there, you're able to share just stories to them and then introduce them eventually to the Prince of Peace. Okay. Well, Cho Cho, just a wonderful opportunity to hear your heartbeat today. And I think you've made a few new friends for the Freedom Project and to talk once again about your speaking in Sydney tomorrow night. Uh, you'll be speaking at the Morling Bible College in Macquarie Park in Sydney. It's one of the biggest Bible colleges in Sydney, biggest ones in Australia. So uh, uh, have a look out for that at Macquarie Park in Sydney, the Morling Bible College. Uh, you'll no doubt get some date and time and uh, where the actual venue is. When you go on to the Freedom Project site, it's thefreedomproject.org uh, to get the details there, thefreedomproject.org. 
Uh, Chocho, thank you so much for taking some time and uh, thank you for your visit to Australia. Thank you for your openness and your ability to be able to talk about the challenges of uh, restoration of child soldiers in the Philippines and Myanmar. Uh, We certainly wish you well and I know uh, there'll be listeners who will want to perhaps even connect with you. Chocho, thanks for being with us on 2020. Thank you so much, Neil, for having me. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.